Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast Indigenous Storytelling, 60,000 Years and Counting, featuring Delta Kay, Bruce Pascoe and Kim Scott in conversation with Adam Shoemaker. Recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you very much. Jingiwala. Jingiwala's our hello here and a big Jingiwala to Bruce and Kim um, for being here on Arakal Country. My name's Delta Kay and I'm a local Arakal woman and I'd like to welcome you to country here. Nyali Nya Garama. We look after this country here. Nyali Garama Mala Jugun. We belong to this country here. Jingiwala, Arako Bumblin, Bunjung, Jagoon, welcome and look after our mother country. Thank you so much. <laughs> Colleagues, friends all, I hope you can hear at the back. Is that fine with the sound? Good. Terrific. I think it's fair to say today we're incredibly privileged at a time when the world is in an unprecedented state of flux and disruption, we have a panel which is focusing upon storytelling as power, as transformation, and as change. Story and cultural power. Strength of word, strength of resilience, strength of action. And all of these are important concepts in terms of the contribution of today's three panelists. It's fantastic to have them here, and thank you again for being part of this. I want to add my respects, thank you Delta so much to the first peoples of this area and this land who've been, for untold generations, have been so generous with their own storytelling and their cultural and spiritual knowledge. It's incredibly important to us. And we pay tribute to local elders as well, past and present, and any indigenous peoples in the audience today. It's wonderful to have you with us. And in response to the generosity of the Byron Writers Festival, we're proud to be also fundraising again for the important work undertaken by the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. The ILF, as you may know, aims to address literacy rates in remote communities where there are a very, very different percentage from main cities, and the basic minimum for reading is very different again. And we'd, of course, welcome any interest, any donation uh, in the orange boxes as you leave today or visit the ILF tent for more information about their really terrific programs. I mean, for many years, this has been uh, an area sponsorship of this festival. And your donation will help gift books and publish stories written by children in remote communities, many in their languages, not just in English. So then we move to the session. Indigenous storytelling, 60,000 years and counting. It's a genuine privilege, as I said before, to have Delta, Bruce, and Kim with us. Introductions are always imperfect, and I'm not going to spend too long on them because you want to hear the authors. But let's say today we have three proudly diverse First Nations authors and three deep talents. Their experiences are as broad and deep as important in each area, and their achievements equally so. But perhaps most importantly, they're sharing that knowledge and story with us today. Delta, as you heard, Araquel, Bambermin, Banjalang woman a proud mother and grandmother, a passionate person about sharing culture. She is here today protecting country 
and doing it actively as we speak. And therefore, please welcome Delta just to lead us off. Thank you. Second, Bruce Pascoe. Bruce's career has been incredibly diverse. I've connected with him in many states, especially in Victoria, when I was a little bit younger, and so was he. And he's Bunurang Tasmanian, Yuan man based in Gypsy Point in Victoria. Really, really interesting work and important work. Continues to do work which is just genuinely thrilling. His book, Dark, his book, Dark Emu, won the 2016 New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for Book of the Year. You're here. We've got to talk about that one. Let's face it, it's just inescapable in the environment that we're in. And of course, it's a super privilege to be here with Kim. Kim Scott. Kim's most recent novel is Taboo, which you will see everywhere. And of course, it's an echo chamber of poetic intensity and a genuinely wonderful work. Nunar Man, Kim is professor of writing at Curtin University and the author of many works. I'm pleased to say I've been reading them since the time when he's first done those early manuscripts and some years ago now too, Kim, but boy, what a journey. And as a university academic myself, all I can say is lucky Curtin University. <laughs> so it really is. <laughs> so colleagues, what we'd love to do is open this up. We'd like to get uh, a discussion going with the panelists. We're very interactive here in this session as well. Very interested in hearing your views. But I thought we might ask, first of all, if any opening statements, anything you'd like to say first, either Delta or Bruce or Kim, anything you want to lead off with, feel free, or we can just roll it, whatever you prefer. Happy to roll? Let's roll. Let's roll, Let's okay. Roll. So it's often said, and all of us who are lucky enough to travel across borders, and we do frequently in this part of the world go between the Queensland and New South Wales border, what an unusual one that is. <laughs> you go to the Gold Coast Airport and you take off and on the runway, you cross the border and go back in time <laughs> an hour before you began. That's kind of an interesting motif for today's session, right? Half of the year only, not now. Okay, so come back in a month or two and you'll be able to have that experience. And it's also said that when people leave the country, that they define themselves. Now, up until the 1st of July, we used to fill out something called departure cards in this nation. It's suddenly now no longer the case, you'll find. It's a new thing. But in the departure cards, there was always a session and a section that said, what is your occupation? I'd be very interested in knowing what the panelists have written down as their occupation, if ever asked that question. Could you maybe tell us what the answer to that question is? My occupation. Yeah, what do you say? Jeez, okay. What do you write down? Um, Aboriginal educator. Cool. And has it always been the same or have you changed that over time? It's changed over time, yeah. Because some people get to a self-view and they stick it. Yeah. Others talk about something like headmistress retired. And it also depends on my audience too um, because I wear so many different hats in this community. Yeah, exactly. So, it, yeah, it depends. So maybe after this festival it might move along in something yeah, else. Yeah, if, if the police pull me up, I say chairperson of the Cape Vine Trust. That's right. <laughs> there you go. So there's a bit of relativity in this stuff. It's pretty important to get that right, yeah. okay? I pull the big cards out then. Yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> thanks, Delta. That gives me a bit of an insight. So, Bruce, what do, you, what do you write if you've ever had that chance to do that? What do you put down? I write down writer. Um, but if I ever go to Indonesia again, if they'll have me, I won't. 
because the la I, I tried to get into Indonesia 20-odd uh, years ago. I wrote down writer and they knocked me back. Um, I then applied again as my father, um, put down builder, and they were very happy to have me. Oh, wow. So builder's yeah. good. Yeah. But builder they of words, not so good. They still kicked me out, but um, they started out very friendly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we're going to get to this story uh, a little more, I think, uh, colleagues. But isn't it interesting, the differences? So Maureen Watson, the wonderful Maureen Watson, used to simply write storyteller on her departure card. And I wonder how many of you have ever done that. Have you ever done that, Bruce? Ever written storyteller down? No, I know Maureen Watson, or knew Maureen Watson. Very important person in my life. Um, I was publishing Australian short stories at the time, and I said, um, Maureen, I want you to send us a story for Australian short stories. And she ignored me for about three years. And, uh, the fourth time that I asked her, she said, no. She said, I don't write them, I just tell them. Yeah, exactly. And it was a really important moment in uh, um, thinking about literature. Yeah, yeah. And so whether you call that oral literature or verbal art or some other invocation of, you know, communication, it's powerful, right? And people who hold to it, and she did, mm. and very, very often did. So we're going to come to that. And I think, Delta, you know, what we heard when you speak, that's the power, too. It's you're speaking it into, into powerful re resonance as you go. Yeah, every year I say, I'm going to be um, signing my book, Bruce, Kim. Yep. Every year I'm going to write this book, you know, gonna, gonna. And, um, yeah, every year I come here, still haven't got that book because it's all in here. Yeah. And it just comes out mm. there. That's mm. right. So there's many different ways of publishing. You speak it into being. Of course, everyone talks about publishing. As we know, the legal academics amongst us would say, and I'm not one of them, you know, you publish just by sending an email or it's out there on the internet. But there are many other ways of making it come <coughs> into being as well. So, Kim, what, do you, what have you written on your on departure, on card? <laughs> departure card? Departure <laughs> Well, I'll be writing Builder next time. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned something already That's sitting right. up here. Uh, I, I think teacher, that's a nice, sort of decent, solid thing. Yep. Sometimes academic. I've never, I've never written writer or novelist because uh, I'm frightened. It's, you know, I always feel I used to be a writer. I used to be a novelist. Yeah. It's the, I don't know if I still can do that again yep. sort of thing. Yep. So I'm superstitious, so I don't write. It'd be interesting to ask Usain Bolt after he retires what he'll write. Yes. Former world champion or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? It's really intriguing to imagine. So when you put it out there, it's just at that moment in time, it's frozen at that moment, isn't it? But the works continue. And that's what's so fascinating. You might be reading the work on the very plane when you've frozen a description of it. Mm. And that's what fascinates, fascinates me. The works can migrate with you, but they change with everybody who's on board that plane. Everyone's reception is quite different. So I guess that goes to uh, a sort of second part, part B of that question. But when you do travel out of your own country, which all of you do frequently, how do you view your homeland differently when you're not there? And how does that relate to your work? Is this girls first? Yep. Yeah, go for it. Important um, people first. It's to do with Cape Byron Trust first. <laughs> it's, it's a feeling that you can't put into words. Like when a woman has a baby, how do you describe that? Looking in your baby's face. Um, coming back in the country, my, my, my heart sings, I get goosebumps, and 
yeah, I suppose that's what belonging is, is when I come home, yeah, that feeling that I feel that you can't describe. So I want to give it to you, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, um, I'm not home until I can um, smell the salt uh, in the river. And not just, not just salt, but swampy salt, because that's where the kind of branch of the river that we're on and uh, you know, sometimes I, so it doesn't matter whether I'm out of the country or just coming home from another part of the country, uh, that's what I'm, that's what I identify as being home and um, sometimes four o'clock in the morning I drive down our road and uh, I get, I have the window open and I get that first sniff of the salt and that's when I really feel like I've returned home. Wow, the senses are there, aren't they? It's pretty powerful. You've talked about senses a lot in your work too, Kim. I mean, very much. Yeah, this is a demanding panel so yes. far, Adam, <laughs> I must say. We've only just started. And I, I always think it, you, know, you get the topic and it's, it's like an exam. You're going to sit <laughs> and this man is making it even more difficult. Oh, oh, breaking the questions down in point A, point <laughs> B. We'll have a multiple choice next with one word answers. <laughs> Um, home. Look, I, I, that, and thanks for those answers. The two before. Mm. I think it's it's like it, we're talking about old stories. One of the features in the little I know of old stories from home is this: the protagonist orbiting away and coming back. Mm. So home is the place I'll get back to. Yeah. It's what's waiting for me. Yeah. Um, and. I feel like I really belong there and I'll, I'll settle there. But it's, it's good to be away from it as well. Yeah. That, mm. that orbit sort of thing. Mm. Um, mm. So you, possibly it's more precious when you're away. Yeah. Um, but it's not a, not a... If you know that you're heading back, it's not a homesickness in these short orbits. So when you look the at... The past there, Adam, the past there. The past is there too. And like the... The landing's interesting. I mentioned airports, but one of your book covers early on has a picture of a little uh, outback runway, you know, in Benang and sort of like crossing over. And that's sort of interesting to see it from above. It's a bit like a painting from above. Yeah, from above or from a distance. Mm. Yeah, you get an overview, I guess. You know, yeah. which is fascinating stuff. So, you know, perspective is so much a part of your works. And Bruce, when I look at the importance of Dark Emu, I mean, look, it's a book which is still rolling through the consciousness of people. Um, a couple of years later, but in the way that it reinvokes so many stereotypes, if you like, that were given about First Peoples and their use of land, their embodiment of land, their construction of land, are you still getting lots of people asking you questions about that book and you know trying to tease it out more? Or how, what's the reception now that it's a little bit more mature? What, what's happening? A lot of people want to uh, talk about particular parts of the book, but I also learn a lot from people and I learnt from First Nation American man recently because I've uh, always been talking about the European mindset when they arrived in Australia, what that meant for our people, what it meant for our country. Um, when I say our country, I mean our country. Uh, what happened to Australia when Europeans arrived. And he um, told me a story about the papal bull of 1493 by Pope Alexander VI, mm -hmm. which was brought into religious practice so that Europeans 
could explain the discoveries, so-called discoveries of Christopher Columbus, uh, because the once he had found the Americas, the church felt that it had to have an explanation to the the people of Europe, um, to nowhere else but to Europe, uh, why Christians could enter a land like that in the way they entered it, and. Uh, it was explained in this way in the papal bull that if Europeans arrived in a country where the inhabitants did not know the name of Jesus Christ, uh, not that uh, they didn't have to know Jesus Christ, they just had to know the name of Jesus Christ. If they didn't know that name, an incredible amounts of indigenous pe uh, people around the world failed that question, mm. like... Kim just failed the question before. <laughs> um, I didn't. There's no I did not. Bruce. <laughs> I gave did you I B minus. Um, <laughs> but um, in, um, in failing to answer that question, of course, then the, <laughs> the next part of the bull said then the Europeans had an obligation um, to take the land from those people and if they resisted um, the right um, to kill those people and to take the remainder into the light um, and the light um, as I've been saying today sometimes came off the edge of the sword um, so you know that perception of the, the European mindset affected us all yeah. and uh, it's it is still playing out so you know there's going to be another iteration of um, dark emu and part of that will will be um, three-part series on SBS TV and great. working on that um, is, is a great joy but also enormously difficult to transfer uh, the book on, onto the screen but it's a lot of fun um, and um, I just hope I'm uh, fit enough. Oh, you're fit enough. It's just whether people are fit enough to receive the message. <laughs> You know, um, I'm glad of your confidence. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. That's great. So Delta, you know this, we talked about this before with this oral into power and just been mentioned about that contact point and it happened all the time in Australia. Mm. You know, you sort of heard stories in, in Western Australia, for example, Northern Western Australia of missions, Lutheran missions, where people were trying to teach people English, but of course with a German accent teaching them English and their first language was completely different. And they often started with songs like Jesus loves me and you'd have, you know, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, and then they'd find out two years later people were saying, Jesus loves hair on the chest, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. And they didn't know how to translate, they just thought the actions meant me. They didn't mean that, right? So do you often find that with people when you're doing the education that you do, that they have to have a little bit more than just, you know, being told the first time? Sorry, what, what, what do you mean? You're just getting at the fact that, you know, with this cross-cultural communication, it's not simple the first time round, you know? And so often, you have to go back for a second or third explain it. Totally. I, I have this problem a lot um, when people are interviewing me. I've got to ask them, can you say that a different way? Because, yeah, it just doesn't, doesn't, yeah, we just think differently, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very difficult. And let so, me, sorry, so, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say also that I just want to make it clear there's no exams on a Saturday, Southern Cross. We banned them. <laughs> so this is absolutely without that kind of assessment, you know, limit. So, so, Please keep going. But what, tell me what was one of the most interesting examples if you were dealing with children, because I know you do a lot of work out in the community. You know, what's one of the toughest questions you got asked by a child? Oh, um, just 
funny ones. I suppose you can tell by a teacher what they're teaching their students because I've recently had a kid get off the bus and say, and look around and go, ooh, where does she live? So what's these teachers telling these kids? Like, I live in the bush where we're meeting. Um, another child's come off the bus and said, oh, she's wearing clothes. <laughs> Crikey. That was a good one. So, yeah, yeah. where I live yep. um, is a big one mm -hmm. because they think that I'm still tribal. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a really big thing is um, getting young children to get their head around that, you know, Aboriginal people, we had to evolve. We can't stand around naked because the police will knock us up, lock us up. And that's what happened to the first Bundjalung, yeah. you know? Yeah. Captain Cook, he, he sailed the east coast of Australia, mapping this place. And when those first Europeans come, they come to take. And they took our red cedar trees, mm. Mm, they mm. raped the land. And these first boat people, they looked at us Bundjalung people and they said, what savages. And they looked around and they said, where's their churches? Where's their schools for the children? Where's their jails? Little did these first boat people know that the Bundjalung people, the land, is our church. Mm -hmm. mm. And our children looked and listened to their elders. They learnt the most fundamental life comes through respect. And jail, well, Bundjalung people didn't need a jail because if you stole, you got a finger taken off you or a spear in the leg or you're banished from the tribe. These first boat people totally misunderstood the Bundjalung. And that word sustainability that I heard you talking about, you fellas, um, during your talk, Bruce, we lived it. When we took what we needed, say a boomerang or a coolamon off the tree, did we cut that tree down to take? Mm-mm. We took and that tree continued to grow. And that farming of the land. You know, I grew up here, just sitting here listening to the... See here the masked lapwing there going off at everyone? Because he's got three babies over there, a little cute little fluff on sticks. And I grew up just down here at the Blondjal. We call it the Blongle, place of the paper barks. And grandfather... He'd farm the land with fire. But all these things change, and as a young Jarjum, a child, and now being an adult with my grandchildren, I see these huge changes in the environment. All this misunderstanding. Our people removed and raped, sent to the mission, it's terrible. Had they just sat down there on the sand and listened and watched our people, we wouldn't be what we are today. Represented the highest 
percentage in jails. It's a terrible thing. Thank you for saying it so evocatively. Bruce, anything that you wanted to pick up on that theme? I mean, the farming and the forestic farming and every other type of farming that was undertaken, so profound. Uh, when Europeans first arrived here, uh, many people in England were campaigning against slavery. And when in the 1970s, when uh, Australians were campaigning against the Springbok tour of Australia, uh, they were campaigning against the racist compilation of that team. But at that time, 1974, um, Aboriginal people still weren't allowed to walk down the main street of Warrnambool. So we were campaigning uh, against one country's racism and completely blind to our own. Uh, so our people had to adjust quickly and the, the ramifications of that disturbance of our culture are still being felt through, through our culture now and it, uh, we see it in our young people, um, our young people having to deal with so much uh, being told that their people were worthless and that's why the country had to be taken away, um, being told that they're a charity case. So no wonder our young people struggle. But they're not going to struggle forever and many of them aren't struggling now. Many of our young people are fighting on. But we always have to explain to them that the culture is alive, that we are not just reforming our own economies as... Um, honorary white people, we are maintaining our culture. And a great example of that, and a great example of the storyteller, is that I am in the company of an 81-year-old um, man, and when that old man uh, was 11, he was shown a drawing in a sand patch on the road near um, Kuma in um, the, the Australian Alps, near Cathcart. And he was shown that drawing of a whale and a parts of the other story, and then it was wiped out. And he was shown another part of that story, and then it was wiped out, mm. and then another part of the story, and it was wiped out. And he was told to remember it, and he was told that because of who he was, he had to find that. That story exists somewhere in Australia. He has to find it. Last year, we were travelling to St Helens and he was on a mission, this old man, because he thought that he knew where that story was now. So we climbed a mountain at the back of St Helens in the Blue Tears and after two or three hours, we came to what he'd seen when he was 11 years old. Mm. And... This was in Tasmania. He'd seen it in Victoria. Water had separated Victoria and Tasmania for 13,000 years. But the people who taught him that story had been telling him a story about a country they'd never seen. Mm. That story was 13,000 years old. Um, you can imagine how I felt being in his company when he saw that. But what it was for me was revelatory of the power of story, yeah. of how important story is to the human and to stand there and see exactly what had 
been drawn for him all that time ago. Just shows you how powerful stories, but also how powerful the country is and how we shouldn't ignore it. We should embrace the fact that this country has a long history and not be scared of it. Mm. All Australians, you know, our people mm. are living that story. Mm. You know, read Kim's new book. You'll be able to get it over there. I'm getting 10%. Nah. <laughs> um, no, you're not. No, nine. <laughs> nine but you re All read right, Kim's 11. new book and you'll, you'll read that story, uh, that really, really old, old story. Mm. And uh, it, it's, it's vibrant in our world. It lives on. So don't talk to us about losing culture, mm. losing language. I don't use that word in relation to my culture, sis. You know, people say, oh, bad luck, you lost your language. And I say, no. Nah. We, we don't use the word lost. Kim's done a lot of work in language. Mm. We're finding language. Mm. So we always say, no, we're finding that language. Um, because if we keep on talking about loss, we'll, we'll always be an underclass. Mm. If we talk about finding stuff, then we're, we're a rising nation. And uh, that's how I like to see it. Well, well, Kim, I don't know what percentage we're talking about here, but that was well over 100%. Yes, yes, know? yes. Well done, Bruce. You know, well said. Yes. You know? <laughs> You're the top of the class, Bruce. <laughs> but seriously, with Taboo, you know, let's talk about your latest. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, the whole series of the concept of the word that which is unspoken, unsaid, you know, uh, the outer, and yet embracing it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Fascinating stuff. How does it link? We've, what I heard coming out of the, the earlier part of the discussion included things like uh, the destruction. So taboo has at its base, um, I think fundamentals of our history, making sure we're clear about this stolen country, something like 10% survived the first 50 years of colonisation. Mm -hmm. And then we have an extremely harsh and discriminatory regime mm -hmm. for most of our shared history. Yeah. It seems to me that despite that, there's an enormous reservoir of culture and heritage and spirit and healing to draw upon. And uh, the language work that I do at home in a tiny little subset of the Noongar community where we trust one another mm. and we're rebuilding as a community around story mm. and around place and a home community of descendants. And that's an enormous reservoir to draw on and it's helped me see things at moments of first contact which I think connect to some of the things we've been talking about mm. here. The uh, oral culture moving into print, mm -hmm. the ability that storytelling and an oral tradition and language gives you. So I think of on that cusp of um, Aboriginal, non Aboriginal interaction at the beginning of our colonial history, mm. moments when Noongar people, and I think this applies to Aboriginal peoples across the continent. Um, I don't know, I assume it does, showing enormous uh, ability, cross-cultural sophistication. So there's a Noongar text written sometime late in the 19th century. Mm. 
Demanga manga, if I can use Nunga language here. Demanga manga, Kitchen Meow, Bona King George Town. So that starts in Nunga language. My old people, our eyes like spears cutting through the forests to where things are becoming bad at King Georgetown. Mm -hmm. The fact that you can embrace a colonial place name within a, a deep thousands and thousands of generations shows something really powerful, I think. Another Noongar song talks about a sailor on a ship looking through a telescope. Mm -hmm. Now that ability to leap into the shoes of the supposed other and to play with that technology not only languages in the previous example, but the telescope and the ship and Noongar people being very ready to use those very things. Ships, for instance, to ex extend their kin and geographic networks. Yeah, yeah. Henry Lawson, to get back to our literary concerns, <laughs> in 1870 well done, met a Noongar in Albany in a kangaroo skin cloak, all the costume of a tribal man speaking fluent French because he'd spent 12 months on a French whaling ship. Mm. Mm. One of the early diarists spoke of being led out east from Albany with a Noongar guide, and he talked about the Noongar guide expressing great interest in him pressing leaves and writing every day in his expedition journal. The mm. same diarist writes of when they returned to Albany, seeing his Noongar guide performing a recitation of their journey and structuring it according to the conventions of that ubiquitous literary form, the expedition journal. Yeah. He yeah. made it episodic and he had an image representing each day. So what that suggests about all those sort of examples, and I could go on, mm. suggests about a storytelling tradition, the resources it gives you to act in a really sophisticated way cross-culturally mm -hmm. and also to open up the possibilities of an indigenous cosmopolitanism I find really uh, exciting and enormously nourishing and I'm very grateful that we live in a time unlike the generations before me when I've got an opportunity to not only tear apart a little bit and gently the existing stories that have received in our shared histories, but also to go back and rebuild, and that's why I'll put that on my passport next time, builder, to rebuild, <laughs> to rebuild a heritage and rebuild those stories and rebuild community around those stories and language and place and we who have survived getting back together around the hearth and the flames of story and ancestral language. Wow. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So we promise the intensity of lyric and poetry as it's spoken into being, and you've heard it just now, power. And I was reminded when you were speaking also about just a 10-year-old who happens to be on the $50 note, David Unaponi, originally in his language, just 10 years old could read Latin and Greek and could speak them as a way in to understanding the very thing you talked about and then changing the story when he told it himself. Fascinating. And that was in the 1920s. And the same person wrote 
a petition to federal parliament advocating an independent Aboriginal state in 1927. A lot of history that we don't know, or if we do, we forget very quickly. Mm. So colleagues, I know that some of you might want to ask questions, and I don't want to keep you from that. But much has been said about <coughs> the power of stories to surprise as well. And I think you've implicitly said that. That not just for the reader, but the writer as well, as it goes. Have you been surprised by the end result of some of your stories in various audiences, Delta? Have, have you found that something which you didn't expect to have happen? Can someone else start? Maybe. You can say no. Maybe. You, can say no. <laughs> maybe. you say maybe. I'm not telling you, Adam. <laughs> you, can say, you can disagree. <laughs> Sorry. I just, yeah, I'm stuck on that. Okay. Bruce, can you lead and I'll follow? No worries, sister. Like I'll Amy. look after you. Um, yeah, I, I wrote a book called Ocean and it was, um, I knew very little about my mother's family or my father's family but I knew a few stories and uh, being economical um, I wrote a novel using those few stories and um, so we're largely it's, um, it's a fiction uh, but years later a local Aboriginal man who, who was a fisherman uh, told me a story about my own family and it's so close to what I'd written it was almost like I dreamt it so um, it was very comforting but also very surprising that my guess uh, about what had happened to my family was very close to the reality but the you know, there's another element in that too is there's an enormously in increasing Aboriginal readership and, you know, I, I remember being asked years ago, like 20, 30 years ago, um, who do you write for? Mm -hmm. And um, I said, well, I write for um, my family and Aboriginal people. And they said, well, that's a waste of time because Aboriginal people don't read. Um, it wasn't... Um, it was a, a lot closer to the truth than it is now because there's a, a vast Aboriginal readership now um, because... Uh, like the man in the, um, the possum skin cloak at Albany uh, talking fluent French, our people were very quick to learn, mm -hmm. still very quick to learn and uh, so it's a, it's a growing thing and that ILF, the Indigenous Literary Fund, is a very important part of that and I'm sure part of the improvement in um, Aboriginal education uh, can be traced back to that fund to which you're all going to be obliged to pay some money to today. <laughs> it's a good thing too. You're very clever. <coughs> <laughs> but this is what black people got to do. You know, when we've got that, um, that, that platform, yeah, we've got to punch it out, don't we, Bruce? Otherwise yeah, we don't get I, listened to. Yeah, I'll get to. a lot cleverer after a couple of beers too. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got to take you for a walk first, okay, on yeah. country. That'd be fantastic. I get really surprised by storytelling. Um, I suppose the, the power of it, when kids leave me and I can just see the awe in their face and their teachers and how teachers say, haven't times changed? You know, we used to sit back and, and learn about Aboriginal people in a book. Yes, everyone here? Did you learn about our people in a book? Awful, isn't it? I went to Mullumbimby High School and I remember being in um, my last year at high school 
and they had an Aboriginal dance group come and they talked about the weapons and the tools and they danced and I sat there and I just cringed with shame. I didn't hold my head up. I sat right at the back and I just cringed with shame because I knew once those dancers, dancers had left, I was going to get bullied and teased. And it happened for about a week. Told to go home and throw my boomerang, get in my canoe, horrible, horrible things like that. But today, I have all these non-Aboriginal children like hugging me after a storytelling saying, I wish I was an Aborigine. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. yeah. So that's my surprise. <laughs> Do you tell stories a lot to children as well, Kim? Uh, no, I used to with my own children. Yes. But um, no, not really. There's a song, I wish I was an Aborigine. Yes. There's nothing I would rather be than to be an Aborigine. That's right. And watch you take my precious land away. Yes, that's right. And so it goes on. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, and uh, <coughs> that, you know, one of the first rock musicals, as I recall as well, you know, in, West, in Western Australia and filmed as, as you know and stage play as you know and... Uh, um, you know, all sorts of influences. And another, uh, you know, I think this is important, another example of uh, not evolving, but a dynamic, um, what a dynamic cultural tradition can make possible, that brand new day stuff, using yeah. those sort of chord progressions and such wit yeah. and all derived from the sort of really rich cultural mix yeah. of broom. Yeah, you bet. Such a place, such a place for those who... I've never been, I've just heard, you know, but love to. May I just share um, another story with you boys about a surprise? Sure. Um, my friend, Jeff, can you pop your hand up? Yes. This is my friend, Jeff. So, hi, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. <coughs> How you going, Jeff? My, my <laughs> surprise was that um, Jeff was at the Ballina Byron Airport. I'm not on Facebook, but I heard through the grapevine that this happened on Facebook. You were at the Ballina Byron um, Airport. Facebook yep, Facebook site, and it uh, and and they were giving away free two free tickets to the Byron Bay Riders Fest, and you had to write in 25 words who you'd like to go away with. Who would you like to be on an aeroplane with? And Jeff wrote about. Me. Uh -huh. Smooth, Jeff. That's a pretty cool way to go. Very smooth. So that's, that's <laughs> another surprise of my storytelling because here's Jeff yeah, who went to school her. with... <coughs> he wants to take you away, Delta. <laughs> no, brothers, he married. No, he really loved your story. But that was a surprise to me because Jeff went to school with my big brother, Michael... Wow. And he he always says to me, I didn't know that. When he when he hears me speak, he learns something new. Is that right? Yeah, that's what I said in the twenty five speeches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to add <coughs> that. Culture, any of the indigenous culture in in Byron Bay as I grew up. Yeah. And I'm still learning. Thank you, Jeff. Can I ask you to thank the panelists for a fabulous, <laughs> thrilling session? 
I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.